Can't we just redesign the systems that don't work? The people I'm having the chance to converse with in different parts of the world are imagining new systems, new collaborations. They're imagining a new world. Welcome to Design Influence. I'm Isabel Swiderski. There's a lot going on in Lima and Peru in general around social entrepreneurship. Lots of ideas. Some of them are simple solutions to thorny issues. Some involve more stakeholders and are therefore more complex to describe. I was in Lima supporting startup ecosystem builders and taking part in a training day for micro, small, and medium enterprises. The MSME event, organized by the Asia-Pacific Foundation and Global Affairs Canada, featured a talk by Dr. Gavin Armstrong. I met Gavin a year ago in Toronto, and it felt like a small world to meet again in Lima. Over and over, what came up in conversations that day was how difficult it can be to measure and express the multifaceted performance of a social enterprise. Given Gavin's success, it seemed the perfect topic to explore with him. As founder and president of Lucky Ironfish Enterprise, a Canadian social enterprise tackling the issue of iron deficiency with a simple health innovation, Gavin's long list of achievements are impressive and inspiring. Gavin was awarded the prestigious Forbes 30 Under 30 in the social entrepreneur category in 2016. He's received the Muhammad Ali Humanitarian Award and is the first Canadian to receive the William J. Clinton Award for International Work Against Hunger. So what is it that makes the story and mission of Lucky Iron Fish Enterprise so compelling to partners, stakeholders, as well as customers and beneficiaries? What ingredients does a social enterprise need to thrive? The current solution for iron deficiency is mainly iron supplement pills. Uh, and though these are effective, they're expensive and they can have some really nasty side effects. And so we've developed an alternative to iron supplements, which is a cooking tool that when boiled for 10 minutes in one liter of liquid, it can fortify your meal with your daily required iron intake. It doesn't change the taste, color, or smell of the liquid it's cooked in, and it can be reused every day for up to five years. So the concept of, of Lucky Iron Fish uh, resulted from research being done by someone named Chris Charles for cooking with cast iron. So cooking with cast iron has been shown to um, put iron into the food, but it's an inconsistent amount of iron and there wasn't a lot of cl uh, clinical evidence to support it. And so did some research to reverse engineer that uh, and develop a cooking tool that when boiled would fortify the food. Okay. Uh, so I got involved for my PhD, uh, right. living in Cambodia, uh, and that's where I worked with Chris and innovated uh, the product and developed the Lucky Iron Fish, which is what we use today. Got it. And so yesterday when we were um, at the event together, you were mentioning that you had a customer insight as to why people weren't using it when you first tested it. Can you tell us about that story? So in the original research, uh, we were using an iron disc, and though that was found to be scientifically effective, women didn't want to cook with it because it actually looked like a piece of garbage. Uh, it was just like scrap metal. And so women were saying, this looks like trash. I don't want to put this in my food. Uh, but instead of giving up, did some research and tried a few different shapes uh, and discovered that the symbol of a fish in Cambodian culture is lucky. And so shaped the disc like a fish and women wanted to cook with it because they thought it would make them luckier. And then when they felt the, the benefits of using the product, they would say, well, this fish is really lucky. I don't have headaches anymore. I'm not fainting. Uh, and that's where the name Lucky Iron Fish came from. That's so cool. So what made you passionate about this? Why, why are you now 
pursuing the growth of this company? I was spending some time volunteering in Dadaab, in the refugee camps in northern Kenya, and I was doing fundraising for uh, hunger-related initiatives. And I was stunned to learn that even though hunger is this massive problem, with 800 million people going to bed every night hungry, um, hidden hunger or malnutrition was much larger, but not getting the same amount of attention. About 3 billion people go to bed malnourished every night. The largest issue of hidden hunger is iron deficiency, which impacts 2 billion people. So when I went back to university, I said, this needs more attention. And that's where I learned about work being done for cooking with cast iron. And that's when I decided to do my PhD on that project. You've mentioned that anemia is widespread. What are some of the symptoms of, of it? Signs and symptoms of iron deficiency range from dizziness, fatigue, headaches, pale skin, brittle nails, your hair falling out. But it can be much more serious. Uh, it can make you more susceptible to other diseases. It can in, uh, increase your chance of, of bleeding to death during childbirth. It limits the cognitive growth of a, a child's brain in the first thousand days of life. Uh, and ultimately, it can lead to death. Oh. And how much does the fish cost? So Lucky Iron Fish is 25 uh, USD, uh, and it can be reused every day by the whole family for up to five years. So when you look at other solutions for iron deficiency, daily consumables, um, you could be spending that per month per person. So why is Lucky Iron Fish a social enterprise? I'm a firm believer that businesses have a responsibility in solving the world's greatest challenges. And I've believed this since I started my commerce degree in university. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're an accounting firm or a health company, you have a responsibility in doing your part to help fix this planet. When I established Lucky Iron Fish, I made a commitment to have a positive impact in every element of the business. It wasn't just the product that was going to help people, but how we got that product out that was going to also have an impact. So for me, it's just fundamental that that's how businesses should operate. And so in that quest to develop a, you know, a, a fair business where you're, you're evaluating how you're doing, how has it gone, has, has wanting to have that stance been positive, negative, difficult, or, or on the contrary, an advantage? When we started the company, it was, we had a lot of goals for what impact would be. Uh, we wanted to have the packaging be made by at-risk youth in Cambodia. It was made out of recycled newsprint. There was a, a cooperative that we hired um, that, used, that employed landmine victims who were sewing these packages out of biodegradable palm leaf. Um, everything we did had this tremendous impact. And that was fine when we were selling a couple dozen units. But as we started to scale and move into thousands of units around the world, uh, we couldn't maintain the impact in those areas because it was too expensive and we didn't have the capacity to keep building at that level. I mean, the cooperatives could only make a few uh, dozen uh, packages a day, not thousands. But instead of, of giving up on our commitment to wanting to have to do good in our business, we just shifted. So we still use uh, environmentally friendly packaging and ink. We still partner with cooperatives and other um, organizations that are, are employing those who need it. Um, but ultimately, we have to remember that the impact is the fish itself and how it's improving health from all of its users. So how did you decide what KPIs or what, what indicators you were going to measure in the performance of your, your business? One of the advantages of the Lucky Iron Fish is it's rooted in science. 
And so its development was through clinical trials where the, the efficacy and impact uh, was clearly uh, laid out. So we had to look for hemoglobin cha cl clinical changes, hemoglobin, serum ferritin, serum ferritin transferrin receptors, um, all pieces where we could measure that this was going to improve someone's iron status. But we know that as we scale, we can't have a clinical test for every pilot, every project that we do. So we've also developed qualitative work that tracks the reduction of <clears throat> signs and symptoms of iron deficiency. So we can track that while using the fish on a regular basis. You'll have decreased uh, frequency uh, headaches, fainting, dizzy spells, things like that. We've also partnered with the university and done a clinical trial showing that using the fish on a regular basis can increase your test scores. So it can have, uh, have a benefit to your academics as well. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're always evolving what we're looking for, uh, depending on what our partner is also trying to, to get from, from our work. Um, but we have a pretty great uh, spectrum of, of impact and KPIs that we can look for. So speaking of partners, who do you partner with? In terms of our sales, we, we partner with uh, nonprofit organizations uh, and corporates around the world who are looking to have uh, improvements in nutrition and focus on, on nutrition and the work that they do. We also have a buy one, give one program where we donate fish for free uh, through the sales from our, our product online. And for those uh, partners, we're looking for smaller organizations still with a focus on nutrition. Um, but who don't necessarily have the capacity to purchase the product. And so that's why we, we donate. So I'm imagining that since you mentioned that you've scaled as well, you've, you've had to seek funding. How has that gone? And what are the tools that you felt you had as a social enterprise that maybe other enterprises don't? Or was that not the case? In the beginning, uh, Lucky Iron Fish Enterprise was funded heavily by grant funding. Um, that funded the research, it funded some of our commercial scale-up activity. And though that was helpful, um, it wasn't sustainable. And we had advisors and board members saying, you need to shift away from, from being grant-supported and be demonstrating that you are sustainable and, and make your own money. Uh, so for the first few years, we did sell the product online with a break-even budget. So it was okay, we weren't growing to the speed that we needed to, but at least we were doing something, um, but we started to get to be stagnant. And so we did make the decision to seek out investment, uh, raised over a million dollars in a seed round, and uh, I've invested all of that money internally so we could actually grow and, and scale larger and, and be more profitable in the future. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you found people that you wanted to partner with or wanted to seek funding from in terms of your own um, thoughts around how they may or may not be aligned with what you were doing. You also mentioned, I think, that you were on Dragon's Den. Can you tell me a little bit more about kind of how you made decisions to seek funding where? That's a good question. Um, you know, it's, it's difficult with, for any organization that's trying to raise money because there are, um, it's, it's very competitive. Um, so it's not necessarily the case that we've set these high standards and that these investors are coming to us. I mean, we're going and we're seeking out investment, whether it's through impact on uh, impact investors, angels, or funds. Mm -hmm. um, we do make sure from the beginning that we communicate our values and what the mission of the company is, uh, because if that investor or investor group 
doesn't sign on to that or if that's not important to them, then we probably aren't a good fit for each other. Um, we've had some investors turn us down because we weren't a high growth company that they wanted. We've turned uh, investors down because their values weren't aligned with ours. Um, but ultimately, it's who wants to invest in this company to see it reach its full potential. And the, the individuals who have invested so far are phenomenal. Uh, they're very engaged in, in our activity. Uh, they act as advisors. Um, and so I'm really, um, I feel very lucky for the group that we have who've supported us so far. You also uh, went through Dragon's Den. Do you want to tell us about that? Going through Dragon's Den uh, was a great experience. I would highly recommend it for anyone who's debating doing it. I was not able to do it for a few years just because of my travel schedule and you have to audition. Um, and I did get a few emails saying, we really want you to, to be on Dragon's Den. Can you please try and last year just so happened that I was in Canada. I was able to talk to the producers. Uh, and so I got onto the show. The pitch itself, like the, you, you're there for hours. Uh, and the pitch it was quite long. I think it was about 45 minutes. And then they do cut it down to be about 10 minutes for the episode. Um, the first you know, 30 seconds to a minute, I think you're, you're afraid that you're going to embarrass yourself. But after you get into it, um, it was a great, it was a great experience. Uh, really good conversation and back and forth. Um, the dragons do pick which um, which pitches they want to see on the season's premiere, and they did happen to pick Lucky Ironfish to be one of the ones that was on the first episode of season thirteen. Um, I won't say what happens, so if anyone wants to know, they have to go watch it. It's on, it's available on the CBC website. All right. Well. <laughs> What a journey. That's wonderful. So so you've had uh, recognition from, from several places. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came about and how it helps you along? So we've been really lucky in getting media attention uh, worldwide, whether it's BBC, uh, Forbes, CNN. I think the, the best story is when BBC did a segment on us. It was during the May 2-4 long weekend. And I believe it was Sunday morning, I woke up uh, to a bunch of missed phone calls and emails from my operations person um, saying that you know BBC had done an article and our sales were, were going crazy. Um, we'd actually gone from selling about 100 units a month to at the high point, it was 100 an hour uh, over that weekend. Oh um, you know, we thought at first our inbox, we were hacked because they're just we had all these emails and we couldn't you know, handle it. And then we saw money in the bank. <laughs> so it turned out we were selling the product. Um, we didn't have the supply to meet those sales, uh, so we had to scramble. We brought a, a team in. We, we got an order uh, rushed. We got some makeshift packaging, and we all just did our best. We emailed all the purchasers and said, it's going to take a little longer. We're sorry. Uh, ultimately, we survived it, and ever since then, we've been just growing uh, upwards. We've never dipped down to the low point of low sales point that we were before. Wow. And So how many countries are you in right now? The fish is available online in about 60 countries. You can purchase it from our website. We have a focus on about 30, uh, and that's from direct-to-consumer sales, but also through NGO partnerships. Did You incorporated the company in Canada? I did. And so how has it been growing a social enterprise from Canada, quote-unquote? The, the Canada factor has actually been a great help. Uh, Lucky Iron Fish is predominantly a women's health company, uh, as iron deficiency is a women's health issue. And right now, Canada is really being a leader for uh, women's rights around the world, where other countries have been attacking women's rights. Um, so I've gone to meetings with health agencies and 
wearing that Canadian brand has really been beneficial. We've actually put a maple leaf on all of the fish because we want it to be known as the Canadian health innovation. Um, so I'm, I'm really happy that, that um, I'm able to represent Canada as we do this globally. There's obviously some logistic challenges in some countries. You have to open up smaller entities, like bank accounts, tax things, the boring stuff that accountants uh, help out with. Um, but ultimately, we're proudly a Canadian company. So how are you deciding what framework to use to be present in different countries? It depends on a few different things. It depends on uh, what the easiest way of doing business in that country is. So India is very different from Peru from a taxation and import point of view. Um, it really is on the strength of our partner, who we have there, how they want to sell, how much attention and investment we want to take. Uh, so it really is case by case. And so you're having to travel a lot. Do you have any advice for people who are wanting to go into different markets into how they can do it in a way that is sustainable and 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 also doesn't put uh, stress on your regular operations? As a company, we've really tried to put a focus on depth versus breadth. So instead of trying to be in a dozen different countries, just be in a few countries and really well. Uh, so have a have a, a lot of demonstrated success there first before we expand. Um, so we do. We have turned down some offers to have you know 100 fish in this country or 50 in the other one, because uh, the amount of work it takes to get into a new market, regulatory clearances, uh, translation of materials, uh, you know, it has to be at a level that's worth it. And so you you've obviously scaled. Tell me a little bit about how it is to now build your team and what are some of the challenges that you've encountered doing that. So. Every bit of success that Lucky Iron Fish has is because of the team, the phenomenal team uh, that we that we have that work really hard every day. Uh, every day is filled with new challenges, uh, and and sometimes it can be very frustrating. Uh, but the, how we overcome it is because of the dedication from our our team. For me, it's I've hired some people, and I've just hired I've brought up people on who I knew, and I knew they'd be a great fit. It's all about trusting your gut. Um, I, if I have a gut feeling that, that you are going to fill a gap that we have, a skill set gap, uh, I'm confident you're going to be able to do that. And so far, it's, it's, I haven't been wrong. <laughs> uh, we've got you know, some great people and, and some you know, have, have moved on. Some have been with us from the beginning. Um, and so it's just every day is it's great coming to work with these people. If you, so how long has this journey been, let's say, from, from the time where you first tested the product to where you are now? So I enrolled in my PhD in September of 2012. I actually incorporated the company December 12th, 2012, so 12, 12, 12, which yeah. was a pure coincidence, <laughs> uh, and then you know to where we are today. Wow. And so I know this is going to be probably a difficult question, but what is the maybe one or two key moments where you thought this is totally going to take us to the next place. Well, aside from the BBC article, obviously, but is, are there any other stories where, where you're thinking, okay, I, I really did the right thing pursuing this? When I was in Cambodia, every, all this, the whole sales strategy was, was Cambodia focused. I had developed a traveling roadshow, had a mascot, had a jingle, um, and had staff. And we basically were going community to community and, and trying to get the fish sold um, door to door. And that really wasn't working. Uh, we didn't have trust in the communities. The people we didn't really understand uh, the sort of sales culture. Um, and so as that was floundering, excuse that pun, um, I was going around the world, um, you know, 
talking about uh, Lucky Iron Fish and conferences, academic conferences. And people would come up to me after and say, I have iron deficiency. Can I buy one for myself? I would love to use this. And that's where I sort of clued in that there's a demand for this, not only in Cambodia, but, but globally. So that's where we developed the online sales model, where it was buy one, give one. So if you bought one for yourself, whether it was from a conference or wherever, we would then donate units in Cambodia to help scale the operation there. And we've since you know, uh, grown the buy one, give one to be an impact fund now. Where we support the distribution of free units, but also educational programs and diagnostic equipment for institutions. Uh, and we've helped improve the lives of over 250,000 people for free through that program. That's impressive. Can you tell me a little bit about what support systems have helped you advance at the speed at which you have? It's been really important for me to have a strong uh, mentorship and advisory group. And the, the themes don't just have to be business. And sometimes mentorship is just about life <laughs> um, and, and how, how to cope with things, how to survive and how to, how to thrive. Um, so I've got a core group of, of individuals who have really helped me. Um, they're always available if I need them, pick up the phone. Um, and they've helped me through some really low points. They've helped me celebrate some really high points. Uh, but I, I wouldn't be where I am today without that mentorship. And so what, what would be uh, advice that you would give a social entrepreneur who's starting their business now and feels that they have a good idea? What do you think the first step is for someone who, who has a, a solid idea and, and, and is, is working toward making it come to fruition? I don't know if there's you know one definite first step. I think there's a few. Um, <laughs> surrounding yourself with the right team, that could just be an advisor or, advisor or a mentor if you can't you know, have the, the means to have like, a staff. Um, but doing it alone is incredibly difficult. The first thing I did when I got funding was hire someone. I didn't even pay myself. I was working for free and I had a staff person because I needed the help. Um, and I had that great mentor. So I think surrounding yourself with the right people from the beginning is going to help um, overcome a lot of the, the challenges you're going to face you know, quicker and easier. One of the things I've uh, seen in, in my in passing is that um, there are individuals who, who do take their initiative and it's like a part-time job because they, they still are doing a full-time job to, to pay for their life. I completely understand that, but it can be really difficult to scale an idea part-time. Uh, so if you can find the means or the resources, whether it's grant funding or you know, prize money, something, investment, um, putting yourself full-time into it is the best thing you can do for the idea. What's been the toughest thing about running this company? Um, there, a lot of things have been difficult. <laughs> um, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't realize. It together. I, yeah, sort of. I didn't realize how difficult fundraising would be. Uh, I knew it would be hard, but this has been. It's a lot of work, and it's very time consuming, and everyone wants something different. Um, so tr I made the mistake of keeping my my daily commitments going while adding on fundraising. Uh, and doing that, I just completely burnt out, and I did have to take some time off because I, I was just, you, it's so, your mindset has to be razor focused on what you're doing, and so I was being torn in two different directions. Uh, so in terms of fundraising, that needs to be your job, so you have to have a support system that can take the rest of the day-to-day -day and manage that on its own, because uh, you need to be focused on that. I think 
it's being the the person focused on strategy and growth and being the one in the office kind of managing is also two different roles uh, and I have struggled with that so I need to learn to let go a bit more uh, it is my like baby and I, I started it from you know from the beginning but I also have to now let someone manage it so I can focus on the bigger picture items because uh, that's where the investors want me and that's where the investors want me focused uh, is on growth. What is the one thing that you need right now to go to the next step? Uh, right now, money. <laughs> yeah. So we're doing a capital raise. Uh, it will officially kind of kickstart uh, this fall. Um, and I'm hoping to raise enough funds to, to get the company to be profitable uh, in two to three years. Uh, and with that, I can focus on some really you know, next level ideas that I want to take this company with. Uh, but the first stage is just to fund everything. So speaking of next steps, then what does success look like for you in a year from now? A year from now is uh, seeing 20% growth in our, our revenue. Uh, right now we are focused on direct-to-consumer sales, which are online and retail. Those are important, but where I see the opportunity is the larger sales to NGOs and uh, corporations. So I'm hiring uh, more resources into that area, uh, but I think success will be having large contracts with these international organizations. How are you mapping out this, the next steps in the organization? What's your process with that? Working with the board, we've set a three-year plan, uh, which has had um, uh, milestones in them. That's had to adapt twice now <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, because things did not go the way we, we expected them to. The plan that we've actually just set uh, for moving into 2020 is one that we're really holding firm to. Uh, I think the, the milestones are ambitious but achievable. Um, and so that, um, that's what we're trying to, to capitalize on with the investors and, and that's the plan that we're holding ourselves to. And what's your personal strategy in terms of your role in the organization? I know you're saying getting, you know, a little bit outside of the weeds to focus on the bigger picture. What's the longer term vision for you as the founder? I want Lucky Iron Fish to be known as a, a, a provider of simple innovation for nutritional challenges. So I want to be taking the company in that direction. That might be moving us uh, into partnerships on diagnostics, might be moving into other nutritional challenges with simple solutions. Uh, but I ultimately, I want Lucky Iron Fish to be the original product in a long line of, of, of additional offerings that we're gonna have. If we go to a bigger picture even, what do you think your role can be as a, congratulations, very successful organization. I mean, it's fair to say that you, you, you have a, a lot of success uh, solving the problem that you set out to solve and also you're on your way to being financially sustainable. What do you think your role can be in advancing this way of doing business? Let's just call it that. I mean, it's all about leading by example. And I, I don't like it when people say, well, having a social enterprise is, is just kind of like a charity or it's too expensive. It's just a marketing ploy. You're not going to be successful. Uh, make money first and then maybe do good stuff with your money. Like, I, I don't believe in any of that. I think that social enterprises can be profitable. Uh, I don't think that it's a gimmick. I think it actually is uh, a fundamental need uh, that our society, our planet has right now. So I want to lead by example and say, no, like Lucky Iron Fish is proving that you can do well by doing good. 
Dr. Gavin Armstrong is founder and president of Lucky Iron Fish Enterprise, based in Toronto, Canada. I'm Isabel Swiderski, and this is Design Influence. <laughs>